Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. I can still sense this God moment, probably in the mid 80s, where God's saying, look, you stay, you know, you stay faithful to me and I'll stay, I'll look after you. And, you know, God's honored that right through. So my faith is still as strong as it's ever been. Um, and there's been some amazing things that have happened as a result of that. Hi, I'm Isaac Archuleta, and your host. In today's episode, I had the great privilege to sit down with a lovely gay man who was born in 1956 and came out at the age of 25. The year was 1981, and coming out meant exposing himself to a New Zealand law of the time that imposed a seven-year incarceration sentence. I find his story, from coming out and facing religious persecution, to marrying a man, to stepping into his lifelong passion, to be a grand example of what resilience looks like. Let's take a listen. Hi. Hi, we're there. Hello, good to meet you. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really quite good. I'm just uh, having a relaxing Wednesday at home. Okay. Good. Yeah, yes. yeah. Good. And uh, just pottering around. I'm not going out a lot. Trying to stay a little bit safe and at home and stuff. So um, I tend to be a bit of a homeboy at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> Some of church is happening, and they're doing a little bit of community work as well, and it's a bit of teaching and stuff. Like, yeah, great. You're looking good. Oh, thank you. You're growing your hair out. It's getting long. It is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Is that is that um, light at the on the just next to me too bright for you? No, that looks that, great. That's just that's just coming in from outside. I can shut it. I can shut it off if necessary. So no, it's really good. I um had just gone and I was just about, if necessary, to send you a link as well. But I thought, no, I'll just wait. And uh, if we yes. need, we can. Uh, so, um, good. yeah, but I'm missing my friends, and you know, um, in the States and all, you know, it's been a, been a bit of a journey the last two or three years. Hasn't it? I know. Were you at, um, were you at Fort Lauderdale? I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was basically the last time I had travelled. And, um, uh, you know, and since then, of course, everything's just locked down. I know. That that trip for me was quite amazing. Um, There was a whole lot of stuff. uh, Because I I had left New Zealand uh, about, I think it was the 20th of November. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. And uh, so it was a really long trip. Mm -hmm. Um, I had travelled with... um, because um, I don't know if you know my background is Salvation Army. Okay. And that that helps inform a lot of perhaps what we'll talk about a bit today. And we, you know, um, but I'm involved in ministry and uh, I'd been invited to go to Singapore and Japan uh, on a ministry mission. Um, so we left here in November and then we had a few days in Singapore, which was really hot. Okay. Then uh, flew into Tokyo. Um, it's the third time I've been to Japan on ministry mission. Wow! But, and this time we we went right up north. You know, we 
um, they flew us up into Hokkaido, the Northern Island, and so from the heat of um, the heat of um, Singapore to the cold of uh, it was you know three or four inches of snow. Then we got back and spent a bit of time in Tokyo and around that area. Um, flew back to Singapore, and I left everyone at that point, and then I flew via Taiwan um, yes. to uh, <laughs> California and spent a bit of time hanging out with some GCN friends. Um, uh, California was warm. Went up to uh, Vancouver. I've got friends in BC um, who wanted me to preach, so I did that. And back Christmas at Seattle. I flew over to <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> Um, and coming back, it was easier um, for me to come back via Singapore. So I had to fly instead of coming back direct. So I ended up flying back from Fort Lauderdale, um, spent a few days with a friend in Seattle, um, back on four or five days in Singapore just to um, unwind and then came home. But you could see that the borders were starting to get a bit anxious at that point. Um, even going into Taiwan and Singapore, you know, in um, in January, you could actually, they were starting to temperature test people. So you could got an idea, this thing's going to be big. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I got, so I got home, I think it was about the 16th of January, and uh, I've been away for about seven weeks. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Not been away since. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Sounds like you met your uh, annual quota for traveling. In that. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I've got airpoints I want to use up. Yeah, well, for sure. <laughs> Before yeah. I lose them. Yes, yeah. you probably want to get yeah. back out there and travel around again. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's that. So, um, yeah, so you're talking about your um, uh, your podcasts, and uh, I've had a little look, just to, and obviously, you know, that you want there's a conversation to have. You know, just possibly, you know, maybe this something that we can look at or I can support you with. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you. Yeah. Now, what sort of what what what's what's your actual? I mean, we, I know you talked a little about um, some of the vision, some of the experiences. Is that basically the direction you're particularly interested in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff. Um, in fact, I can send you. I, uh, Oh, about seven or eight years ago, I sat down and I documented, I think I did about 23 pages, um, A4, not quite the same as US, but uh, pages of um, of just events, you know, through my life that had led to me being the person I was. Um, and there's some, there's some interesting nuances that may come out of it. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I guess... Growing up, as my parents were Salvation Army officers. We were brought up very secure, loving home, um, but we travelled around a lot um, they, because of they were ministers. All of their ministry was in social areas, working with, and most of my time we were attached to, like, men's eventide or what we would call, like, retirement villages, uh, except they weren't quite so um, nice as those. They were really for people who... Um, often stuff I had um, alcohol addiction and a range of mental illnesses and so um, wouldn't say it was necessarily a safe place for young boys to be growing um, to be growing up in but you know it was life was good and you know certainly my parents um, 
outlined the real, you know, you could see through them the heart of what it meant to be Christ followers. Mm. Um, when I was 16, 15 or 16, my parents retired and um, they had to move um, oh, probably about five or four or 500 miles from where I was living in a different island. And the decision was made that I would stay living in Christchurch um, so I could finish my, my high school. Um, but I was only 15 or 16 this year. So as I say, I didn't leave home. I say my parents did. <laughs> and um, and uh, I went to live with a, with a family from church. Now, um, they were an elderly couple. Um, he was strange. <laughs> he was strange. And he used to have this thing. Um, he used to like inviting young boys from church to come and spend a weekend. And there was a ritual where he'd bath them every night. Um, and I'm sort of thinking, you know, you know, I was only 15 or 16, but it just didn't quite seem right. Fortunately, he didn't try bathing me. But um, then their daughter, her marriage broke up. So she moved in with her two children and the household just became totally dysfunctional. So, Growing up, what I learned very quickly was that it was very easy to spend as little time in the house as possible. Um, yeah. Fortunately, I was a bright student, so I was able to. Um, I was able to sort of. I spent a lot of time studying on the library, at church, and stuff. But um, there would be times when I just didn't want to go home. The library shut, mm-hmm. and I discovered a sub street culture in New Zealand. Um, and uh, yeah, it was you know. It, for me, that was quite an exciting um, thing to discover. I mean, okay, I was connecting a lot with, um, I mean, it was all through, the only way you could meet people was, you know, doing the public toilets and stuff like that. So there was this whole, we're talking 1970s. Um, mm-hmm. When I was when I was about 20, I mean, this thing got, uh, when I was about 20, um, the police intervened on one occasion. <laughs> And uh, you need to understand that in New Zealand at that time, not only did the church condemn um, any gay people, but the, the law did as well. And the, he, and the police basically said, you know what we do with boys like you? Um, we lock you up. Um, there, it, it, there could have been a seven-year custod- um, uh, incarceration period. That's what the law provided for. That's scary. So, you know, so growing up, I was 30 before it was, you know, they, they, we decriminalised. So I lived my first 30 years, um, you know, knowing I could be actually uh, not a, um, you know, taken to court and sent to prison. And people were, um, not so much in the 70s and 80s because we were getting a little bit more towards understanding. Um, but, uh, yeah, when I was about 21, I met a man who has become my first romantic interest, um, he lived in the States, but sadly, we couldn't live together. Um, I had professional contacts after six years. Long-distance relationships don't work. Um, so I passed on that. Um, came back and really just got back into church and, okay, I'm not going to be seen to be doing too much in the LGBT commu- community. Um, and uh, 1984, we, we went through decriminalisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my church, the Salvation Army, absolutely did a shameful thing, and they set up a petition to stop the law changing. Wow! And I was so angry over that 
that I actually decided it's time to come out for a stake in the ground and say, this is not only is this nonsense, but this is not acceptable. And suddenly I found where I'd been flying under the radar. Um, the radar, yeah, I just, I just dropped, and I thought, what can they do to me? And decriminalisation was on the cut, was coming. So I, I felt more safer there. Um, my family was supportive, really. Uh, the church, not quite so much. So part of the problem with the church was is that they were ignorant. Mm. And, you know, you don't give good information. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I rode with it. Um, and I can still sense this God moment, probably in the mid-'80s, with God saying, look, you stay, you know, you stay faithful to me, and I'll stay. I'll look after you, and I'll, and you know, God's honoured that right through. So, my faith is still as strong as it's ever been, um, and there's been some amazing things that have happened as a result of that. <laughs> so, anyway, effectively, I mean, I stayed in ministry. Um, I met a man in, my, in the eighties who, well, he was married at the time, but we've been we've been together since 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're coming up 30, oh, I don't know, 30, 36 years. Um, you'll probably meet him in a few minutes. He'll probably come home. So we've been, as I said, we've been together 36 years. And uh, oh. life's, life's been good. Um, <laughs> flew under the radar again, though, and just really didn't want to stir the pot. But started to get interested in not only in the, political advocacy, but also from a theological point of view, just wanting to be able to sort of reconcile uh, why is the church so anti-gay? Where does it come from? And is there something I can do about it? Um, and that was um, that was really, that, I guess that was the foundation Um in the mid in the mid two thousands, I met a young man um, who, well, uh, I met him actually through a ch- through a church related event, um, and he and his wife and I became really good friends. Um, I knew that he was gay. He never told me, but you know, I just knew. Sure, uh, sure enough, he did come out to me a bit later on, and he um, he. I remember the day he sat in my lounge and said, "Colin, I need to tell you something." <laughs> Um, my marriage was arranged. Uh, surprise, surprise, I had worked something like that out. Um, this morning I was diagnosed HIV positive, mm. and I don't know how to tell my wife and family. Uh, would you be there for me? Oh, wow. Um, and there came this absolute realisation, you know, God's setting up a, you know, this isn't just happening. Um Unfortunately, we'd also become very, well, I don't want to use the word affectionate, but there was a real closeness. And, you know, we had situations been different. You know, we could have easily ended up um, in a relationship. Um, but he became very codependent, um, you know, ringing four, five, six, seven, eight times a day. And I, we could have sort of his life spiral. And uh, um, this was in the late, in 2000s. Um, and, uh, well, ultimately, we saw it coming, but he's self-harmed and is no longer here to tell his story. Wow. Um, and I, at that point, sort of committed myself, I will never again stay silent when mm-hmm. it was the harm. And, um, and I started 
just looking for ways to... Um, sadly, my church, I couldn't tell them the whole story. They knew a little bit, but they didn't know the whole story. Um, and I ended up as a bit of a mess, to be honest. That's the polite way of putting it. And um, I was due to go to Japan on a ministry tour, and we were so... The easiest thing, I don't know, you've probably seen this in your psycho, you know, in the work you do with counselling, that often when people get themselves in a little bit of a dissonance, they find a way to keep themselves busy so they don't actually have to dress. Yes. Um, and <laughs> I perfect that <laughs> um, for about 18 months, and I was able to really keep that whole thing, you know, um, under wraps. But, of course, changing jobs and other things, and but you know, you can't keep doing that. You just can't. And uh, and there was a moment, uh, and I remember sitting down thinking, look, there's got to be more to it than this. And uh, Googling gay and Christian, of course, up came GCN. Mm -hmm. um, that started a whole new journey for me. Um, a few months later, I was at my first GCN conference, which was Anaheim. Um, as a result of that, I couldn't help but note there were a lot of people sitting around who were very obviously not able to engage with others, and me being me, I mean, New Zealanders and Australians see the world probably a different through different lenses, um, and we we you know we don't have any issue going up and talking to people and being friendly. So I just started doing that, and um, I don't know if you remember Nate Croke. Nate was the admin of um, he was he was basically Justin Lee's right-hand person in GCN. And he contacted me and asked for some advice on how can we do things better, started talking about hospitality. And uh, as a result of that, um, well, long story short, I was invited to uh, scope a hospitality um, role um, and then, of course, invited into that role. And uh, so I said, look, while, while I believe God will resource it, I'll be there. Mm -hmm. Well, that was 2009. Um, I had been at every single GCN QCF conference um, stateside that's happened, uh, except um, for one, and that was um, uh, the one that was in um, Pittsburgh. Um, okay. I, I had actually, I had, I just put, uh, I just put property on the market, and you know we were going through the, so it just wasn't going to work. So. So, so that was basically since that time and doing hospitality. So, you know, and I mean, I can go through and probably about 12, 12 conferences. Wow. Yeah. Um, and even in the last two years. So that's been the journey. What I've seen is God, God just given me an absolute passion for the ministry, um, mm -hmm. but not only with QCN, QCF, but has opened up doors with the Salvation Army. Awesome. Now, the way things have happened in the Salvation Army is just outstanding. And I see God at work in this. So um, effectively, um, New Zealand knew they'd, they'd really stuffed up badly in 1985. Mm -hmm. um, and they did try and redeem themselves. That was the decision that was made by some leaders who really had really no moral compass uh, and they did it without, you know, without good consultation, and um, and they ended up with egg on their face, effectively, and came back to haunt them for years. But as a result of that, from the ashes in New Zealand, New Zealand then grew into being one of the strongest 
um, groups to actually stand up and speak for the voiceless and uh, those who are marginalised. Um, I got involved in an online group for Salvation Army people about 10 years ago. There were 20 of us. It was very poorly run. Um, it was just a random group. And I just started getting involved and building it up, um, mm. inviting people. We now, in our Facebook group, have over 2,700 members. Um, we wow. have Salvation Army members from right around the world. It's the largest voice of Salvation Army in in the world. Um, one of the things that did my heart good, I, I realised about five years ago that changing, doc, changing theology is hard. You know, you've got to changing people's minds and i mean you can have all the doctrine you can know all the history but it's hard mm -hmm. and so i really started to think so we have to do it in steps and the very first step was to me was quite clear what we need to do is first of all change the understanding of people's minds that um sexuality and gender identity is not a choice mm -hmm. and if we can make that leap then we can start building on the next thing. And then the next step, that actually happened relatively smoothly. Um, so the next step was starting to address, okay, um, conversion therapy. Mm. Yes. Uh, and I was fortunate because I had been at the um, conference in Orlando 2012, it was, you know, the Allen Chambers Conference, mm -hmm. and had been and sat through it. And we could see... We could see that the uh, wheels were starting to fall off the bus. Um, and so I, that was the next thing I started working on is, okay, getting the message out that we've got to do something about stopping praying the gay away. Now, the Salvation Army in New Zealand, uh, look, to their credit, very much tapped into me and asked for assistance. And we ended up being the first Salvation Army in the world to actually put a stake in the sand and say, we stand against conversion therapy. Um, they put in a, um, when all the church, New Zealand has only just passed legislation about eight weeks ago, banning conversion therapy. And all of the right-wing conservative churches were all standing up and still going back, you know, the old rhetoric. Salvation Army turned around and said, no, we stand for the marginalised. We stand, um, we know what the evidence is. Conversion therapy not only is harmful um, and does this sort of damage, but it is not consistent with this, with our understanding of Scripture. And they were the only church that actually stood out and spoke against it. And I'm looking at, is this the same Salvation Army who 40 years ago had uh, fought decriminalisation? Sure. So I'm, and I'm really grateful. Um, one of the things that I've realised, and it took, it, you know, I think this is just a, maybe divine inspiration, um, is that if you're going to be effective, there's two or three different ways of doing advocacy. And one of the ways is to get in there and just really, you know, um, you know, be vocal and shout and stamp. And I've, that's not my style. My style is so. My style was to sit down first. Like, okay, I'm go I'm going to get into scriptures. I'm you know I'm going to actually learn. And I've spent quite a bit of time actually just, just sitting here. I'm wow. I'm um, 
I can I can I can actually make more I can sit down and read New Testament Greek quite comfortably. So that was one thing I did. Um, and I just started looking at the theology and of course some of the resources, particularly the work that Kathy Bulldog is doing. Um, and her work, I mean she's been out, she stayed here with John and I. Um, so it's been just building up that knowledge. Well just yesterday I got an invitation. Um I've been invited onto a steering group for the Salvation Army in New Zealand to find a way to become more inclusive. That's amazing. That's just and what they said to me when they we we've asked you to do this because we have seen your grace, we have seen the way that you have honoured not only honoured God but the you've you've actually worked through those issues in a way that people respect you. And uh, so there's a lot of that. Um, um, so that's really where I'm at now. Um, I still have some issues. Um, I also, with my group, the and you're welcome to, um, to be added to the group, um, Salvage for a More Inclusive Church. Um, there's a lot of advocacy and resources and that get used. I see my role as pastoral. Mm -hmm. because that's something that's missing um so like you know every at least once a month i'm putting up some form of reflection uh at the moment we're doing series a lenten series um we've done it for the last three or four years Mm -hmm. um and it's just but through an inclusive lens um like this last year, we did the seven I am statements of Jesus from the St. John, from John's Gospel. This year, we're looking at the seven last words of the cross. And it's amazing when you start to look at them, just how much you can actually talk, you can speak into the hearts and minds of, you know, the LGBTQI plus alphabet soup um, community. So I guess that's just a whole, a bit of a, a run. Um, I did jot down just a few things you may find useful. Um, you know, um, I mean, there's the topics around what are some of the positive outcomes that have happened, mm-hmm. changes that I've seen, what are some of the lessons that have been learned. Um, you know, just what a message. Is, is, there message. is there a message for others? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. Is there anything in that that would be useful for you? Yeah, I mean, this is all great. Yeah. One thing that we're really focusing on is for this pride is um, the theme, I am resilient. Yeah. And as I'm listening here, I just find myself almost like um, on my little notes paper here, I have like your name and then just next to it, like the words resilient. Like, mm-hmm. I think your story here is quite profound in the way that you have almost kind of politically, religiously, however, but you've literally tackled this topic, this challenge in New Zealand quite forcefully in a beautiful way. <laughs> yeah. I'm, where do you feel like that grit or that gusto, that motivation came from? I look back, I think, the very first awareness of it was probably 1985 okay. um, during that during that law reform change. 
And it was a sense of sort of wanting to say, God, look, I'm done with this church. I'm done with the nonsense. <laughs> and it was just that small voice in the back of my mind. And, was, you know, I can only put it down to God's spirit mm-hmm. saying, no, stay. I need you. Mm-hmm. Be strong. Um, yeah, I mean, we, when you read through scripture, the number of times you see, you know, verses, you know, I'm thinking particularly of Joshua, you know, um, you know, be strong, do not be discouraged, for I am with you, I will be with you. I, yeah. um, there's this sense of, but also being aware that it had to be in God's time and not my time. Mm. Um, I do remember, um, would have been not that long after a good friend of mine who was a, a strong Christian woman um, who had it, who had the gift of prophecy. Now, she said to me, look, there's something like God, I need to tell you that God's, God's told me to tell you that he's got something really amazing in store for you and that, um, and that there's got, you know, there, you are going to be used in a way to bring a reconciliation, reconciliation and healing um, to the LGBT church, and, but also to the church. Mm-hmm. Because the church needed also people to lead them through that part of the process. Um, so I think it goes right back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly came to a head in 2005 with um, Michael's death. Uh, and that really did, um, that really knocked me. Um, because, his, because we were such close friends and uh, having seen himself harmed as a result of uh, basically um, Christian bullying from his church. You know, the, now, um, I'm, you know, and just actually seeing that and just thinking, you know, this is not the gospel um, that brings life. Mm-hmm. This is not a gospel that, you know, when Jesus said, feed my sheep, mm-hmm. that provides, you know, nourishment for his people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think and there was that. There was a very clear moment, um, and I can pin it down to the exact day. And that was the Sunday morning of worship um, in my first GCN conference in Anaheim, and that would have been Sunday, the sixth of January, two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. Now I remember it specifically um, because I was still going through quite a lot of the processing because Michael had been he had been dead for probably about 18, 19 months, 19, 20 months. Um, I'd managed to keep it under the, you know, keep busy for a good year or so. And then there came that moment that God was saying, okay, it's time to address those issues which are yet unresolved. Mm -hmm. Um, On that Sunday morning at that conference, it was quite a different conference. Um, and we they used to do things quite differently. I mean, um, on the Sunday morning, we basically had an evangelical uh, service. It wasn't a, um, you know, very much of the sort of the Episcopalian, you know, <laughs> uh, offering where you actually, this, they bought an, um, I, I don't know if you, have you ever heard of the Reverend Evelyn Shave? Yes. She, she came in. And she was a rattling and shaking and moving, and you know, I thought, you know, we were waiting for the fire to descend from heaven. And <laughs> she she preached up a storm. 
there was here Adam Shamelessly. She preached up a storm. That was the same G- uh, GCN conference where Ray, um, oh, what's his name, the music um, well-known uh, musician, had just come out. Uh, Ray, Ray, Ray Maltz had performed. Yes. Um, and the other person who was at that was uh, um, Peter Gomes, who of course was a well-known and. And it was just a, it was a wonderful introduction mm-hmm. to the to the concept of what could be happening in, in reconciling ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, but so on the Sunday morning, as I said, Evelyn was there. We only had about three hundred conference, and she preached up a storm. And I was sitting near the front because uh, I'd been involved in some music, and she had an altar call. Now, I don't think we've ever had altar calls at uh, conference since, but. She had an altar call. Over a hundred of our folk from that conference came forward for prayer. Wow. And I'm watching this going on, and I'm sort of thinking, I need to step up because there are people here who need prayer. Mm-hmm. And I um, spoke. I went up to one guy. He had it back to me. I couldn't see who it was. And... Um, you know, as as and as I would always do if I'm with someone during a you know an altar call to pray, I would say, "I you identify yourself, you seek comfort, you seek permission. Would you like me to pray with you?" Uh, you know, you don't just <laughs> and absolutely. And then when I met, when I saw who it was, he was a guy I'd spoken to the day before. Mm-hmm. Now I didn't realize it was him. He was a former Salvation Army officer who had just been dismissed from officership a few months earlier. Mm-hmm. His marriage was in tatters, and he was gone saying, this is the ministry. This is the manifestation of what I've been preparing you through. And the verse that kept come to, it came to me was John from John 15. To do this, you need to be connected to the vine. Um, God, I'm going, you know, I'm going to do something in your own life that is going to, you know, upset you. It's going to, you know, you're going to be really uncomfortable with it. I can't use you if you can't if you're not comfortable with that. So I think there was this moment of absolute. Yep, this is where the rubber hits the road. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be serious, you know, about being available to be used by God for this type of ministry and come, then. I need to be open to letting God do the work that God wants to do. Um, so, I mean, I come back, I still hold very strongly to my faith and to, uh, for me, Bible reading, prayer is an absolute vital part. Now, with the podcast, um, does it have a Christian focus or you're more focused on um, uh, LGBTQ? Because, I mean, I just want to be sensitive to sure. that as well. Yeah, um, because I know that there will be people who will start listening as soon as you start the God, you know, pulling the God card. They'll sort of switch off. And, uh-huh. um, but there's ways in which you know we can just entrust that God will make that connection in their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What was it like for you those first thirty years of living in a country where it was criminalized to be gay? How did that affect you, your self-esteem, your coming out? Um, I think it was part of the culture. Um, so you didn't actually, 
I mean, first of all, we didn't have the social awareness, and the, and I mean, you didn't see gay people around. You didn't. It was something people just didn't talk about. Okay. Um, in fact, there was a real sense of probably until I was twenty, anyway, that I was the only one. Mm. And if you think you're the only one, you're not going to go out and try and. Uh, and the other and um, the other thing which is fascinating, I also have uh, quite a bit of sociology in my in my um, degree, mm-hmm. and the sociological impact. Most gay men were going into entering into mixed orientation marriages. Sure. Uh, that was just the culture. And, uh, you know, you've probably seen that if you trace back through history. And I think I did actually hear some research even around the time that at least um, I think it was, I don't, I, I'd have to check on this and it would be hard probably to find out, but at least 50%, particularly men, I, don't, I can't speak on behalf of women, of gay men were finding it was easier to find a wife have a family, and of course, um, and so there was this real culture, which is why, as I said, you know, when I was about 16 or 17, discovering all these married men who just, you know, had a particular energy in the world, and, and <laughs> hey, I, I was young, I was happy to, <laughs> to oblige. So I also, you know, I grew up, you know, not, you know, I certainly wasn't green when it came to what the um, what two men could do together. Um, sure. But I never actually sensed that it, I didn't see it as an oppressive situation. I didn't, I, um, and I don't really recall too much where, where people were prosecuted. Uh, I mean, the threat was always there, mm-hmm. but the actual action. Um, the other thing, too, is, is that there had been a number of attempts. Uh, even through the seventies, um, when you know, when when, when I was probably um, in my early twenties, late teens, where there had been a cha- an attempt to change the law, um, and the Salvation and not Salvation Army, the the gay um, emerging gay movement had probably been. Don't want to use the word their own worst enemies on this one. But one of the things they would not concede on, uh, the age of consent for heterosexual um, relationships was 16. Um, They wanted a different age of consent um, for gay men. And the gay community said, no, it's equality, either, either full equality, age 16, or not at all. And basically, the answer was then it's going to be not at all. So it did derail that um, desire to change the law, probably another ten years. Okay. Um, but it was, yeah. And I and I totally get why they would say, you know, um, you know, if it's sixteen for um, for straight, you know, people, it should be sixteen for um, for gay and lesbian people as well. Um, so, so I guess in many ways, you could see that the the winds of change were there, mm-hmm. but they never actually were able. Uh, it took a while for all the ducks to line up for those, that legislation um, to fall into place, uh, and then, of course, not only that, but we had to make sure we had a we had the people in the house 
uh, you know, who would be able to pass such legislation. Um, the, uh, and I mean, New Zealand, when it was introduced, oh boy, I could tell you some, there was some horrible stuff coming up from the church. Oh, sure. um, and some of it was just, some of the rhetoric, um, you just don't, you just can't believe just how awful it was. Um, there was one particularly nasty um, member of parliament um, who basically, I, I was at a meeting, he stood up and says, you know, look at look at the gays. You know, stand up all the normal people. You know, look at the gays, but don't look too hard. You know, you're staring into the eyes of Hades. Mm-hmm. You might get AIDS. So, again, that was another component as well as early 1980s, mm-hmm. trying to get change, and we're dealing with the HIV um, um, epidemic as well and not understanding as much as we do now, mm-hmm. uh, not having the medical knowledge. So... There was a lot of, I, I think there was a lot of stuff that had to happen. Um, but for me, I mean, I I never ever felt that I would what I, you know that that I was ever going to be. I was a sinner or anything because I was gay. I knew it was just who God had made me to be, and I um, and I certainly got to know a lot of other gay people. Um, what it did do, though, of course, it meant you kept very quiet in church sure. you didn't talk about it mm-hmm. uh, it be, it does become a bit of an issue though when you're 30 and suddenly you find you know everyone else is getting married and you haven't um, that's a loud political statement yeah mean. so so there's a whole lot there's a whole lot of nuances going on mm-hmm. uh, particularly with you know as I said from a political from a socio um, economical from a you know, you name it. Um, you know the dynamics of of just living in a in a very. Um, well, I mean, New Zealand is based on the Westminster type of government, so it was always you know government here was always going to change. We do have one. We do have one advantage, um, which you don't have in the states. Now, dare I say that um, we're we're uni we're unicameral. We only have one house, so it doesn't have to go through a second uh, oh, no. through a second reading to get the, the royal assent. Okay. If, once the government passes the bill, um, it then goes to the governor general for the royal assent. Mm-hmm. Now, not there are not many governments, I think, that are unicameral. You know, where you don't have, you know, it's got to go through from the, you know, House of Representatives to the Senate, you know, to the Senate or back vice versa. Um, with that, of course, there could be the argument that you haven't got the checks and balances, but, um, yeah. So that's been, I guess that's sort of just a bit of an outline. Um, sure. And, of course, what I've discovered in the last, particularly probably 15 years, is just an amazing international number of friends. Um, and my, another thing, now here's another thing my church did, um, and I'm trying to think, would it have been about, 2017. I know that was the year I didn't go. I I couldn't quite afford to go. And my my local Salvation Army called me to one side and they said, Now we know we see the benefit that your ministry have. In fact, they used the word, we see the kingdom value. <laughs> now that's real Christianese, if ever. For sure. <laughs> uh, we, see, we see the kingdom value of what how God is using it. We know that there's 
here is a love gift of $500 to help you get to the stakes. But please don't tell others in the congregation. So, <laughs> so, so you know, there are all those sort of little nuances. Mm -hmm. And I can say, hey, this has just got to be God at work. It's got to be. It's got to, you know, this, this just isn't coincidence for me. This is, there's stuff happening here. Um, um, I do joke, though, um, you know, because we haven't quite in the Salvation Army got ourselves yet totally inclusive. We're still dealing with some challenging things. I joke a little bit about that um, I used to be like Moses and feel that I'd want, I was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years um, and wouldn't be allowed to cross, you know, into Canaan. But now I'm starting to joke that, like Jeremiah, I've been in captivity. I'll be in captivity for 70 years. And <laughs> um, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, I mean, that's a, that's a theological joke, but you know what I mean? Um, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. So I like the idea of, you know, well, I'm, I'm Moses. I can see the promised land, but I'll never be allowed to enter it. For sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. So I guess, so. I mean, if there's stuff from that, um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to sort of meet and, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, we can, we can, how long do you normally, would you normally need? This is great. I have a couple of questions if you have a couple more minutes. Oh, please. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. When you're talking about living through kind of that decriminalization era, if we want to call it that, you talk about it as though there was something, a, a type of confidence that almost protected you, protected your self-esteem, protected your dignity. What was that that allowed you to walk generally unscathed? I have to put it down. I think I was very fortunate in that there, I didn't have I didn't have family members mm. who were homophobic. Mm -hmm. um, New Zealand confident. I mean, New Zealand was also not a com not a country which we deal with con confrontation. Um, even though on paper that was there, um, a lot of it I think came from the fact that. Uh, if I had to say, where's it come from? I have to say, look, it was divine. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, that's something a lot of people may not necessarily understand. But if I have to trust that if God had actually wanted that to happen, mm -hmm. um, then this was this was me seeing, um, you know, things falling into place. Um, partly too is that I made sure that I I, I read as much as I could. Mm -hmm. So that I understood not only uh, not only from a, um, the LGBTQ perspective, but also from what was it that was creating the barriers for the church. Now I, I have no, my I didn't have the understanding I've got now about that. Um, there is a, a real awareness that the reason why people were so homophobic or anti-gay isn't because they. They, you know, actually believed it, but it's learned behavior. Sure. And learned behavior, um, you know, you, you just repeat what you've been taught. And if you're not taught anything different, then I guess, you know, you're just going to, you're just going to repeat that same narrative. Mm -hmm. Because I was able to experience 
maybe different perspective, do extra reading. Mm -hmm. Things I had been taught, I was deconstructing them. Um, so that they, you know, so that, you know, if I if I'd had to go back and just hold to the things, um, the Bible says it's a sin, you know, um, it's clear, this is what the, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to make the move that I have. But because I'd actually started to grapple with some of those difficult questions, um, I didn't necessarily have the answers, but I knew that the answers that I had been taught by the church did not necessarily hold substance um, when it when it came to actually being investigated under the light, mm-hmm. uh, and so I was more interested in finding out why. Yeah, um, that's wonderful. I can tell you too. There's been a number of times when you know, sort of my from a mental health point of view, I guess um, my faith allows me to be keep quite a strong mental mm-hmm. um, health. Um, I mean, I have meltdowns, and I even even now I sort of get really angry. Sometimes I sort of think this is this is really. But um, I I also made sure that another thing I did, I made sure that I looked after myself. I surrounded myself by positive people, mm-hmm. um, and I was open to meeting, you know, to having um, gay and lesbian friends. Not necessarily, you know, people who you want to be. Uh, romantically involved with but just people who so I was hanging out with Christians and I was hanging out with (laughs) non-Christians and I I also knew who my friends were um, and who I could rely on if things uh, you know things get a little bit messy that would be one thing I would say if people are trying to get themselves uh, you know do just find their voice is find the people you can trust. Mm. Um, find the, and 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 don't hesitate to share with them. Um, I think of a particular story. Now this came from my second GCN conference. Um, so I was heading the um, hospitality team, and I met a young man who it was at conference for the first time. This was the one that was in um, uh, Tennessee in Nashville. And he was a delightful young fella. Um, I just I connected with him very well. But he told me his story that his parents, who were evangelical ministers, had forbidden him to come to GCN conference, and he just knew he had to be there. So he told me that he had actually climbed down the drain pipe um, on a Sunday morning, or some some on, and his friends had picked him up. And driven, and they'd all driven to to conference. And he said, my parents had forbidden me to go. Now, he was a young man. I mean, he was about 18, 19. But, you know, he had, and he said, but I just knew I, and he was in that real, what have I done? Mm-hmm. You know, what have I done, though? He couldn't get, um, but I just found, you know, I just found him such a genuine young, uh, young man. And um, we, um, yeah, so I, you know, we had a little bit of conversation. In the final circle, um, he came up to me and said, Ah, oh, Colin, it's real southern drawl. 
I just want to take you home to, um, I just want to take you home with me. <laughs> and I, I just last it might be a bit too soon to meet mother yet, don't you think? You know, and, <laughs> uh, and we just, you know, we just clicked. Well, I lost, I lost, um, I didn't see him for the next two conferences. So I lost basically con contact with him. Mm -hmm. um, and then in Phoenix, three years later, he fronts up and he's at conference. Mm -hmm. And what do I see in front of me is a bright, vibrant young man who was confident. And he was a totally different young man. Love that. His, he had gone through the process. He'd found his voice. Mm -hmm. He had also been prepared to accept that, okay, um, he might have to put himself through college because, um, you know, if, if, if the parents had said, well, you know, this was one of the things. Um, not only that, but he had um, he, he was he was now in a relationship with um, another boy who I introduced him to that same conference, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just saw this absolutely amazing change. Mm -hmm. And I see this time, and I've seen this many times with people at conference. You know, you see them a year or two later, and they are not the same people. You know, they've found a voice that. Um, but he, he came up to me and said, I need to ask you a question. He said, my um, godfather has disowned me. Mm. Uh, now, here was a young man who was in his 20s, but my godfather has disowned me, and I need a Christian influence, godly Christian man influence. Would you become my godfather? Oh. Next, that's another story from that conference. So he, uh, um, he married his husband, uh, they are now married. They live in um, in Washington State. Um, I saw them actually. I had dinner with them just before I came over to Fort Lauderdale. Lovely to see them. They're an amazing couple, um, and have just found themselves. You know, so those are the sorts of stories you you know when you see that, and you realise it's not about me. It's and if if. Part of that resilience comes from knowing what is possible mm -hmm. uh, and what, you know, and when you see it, it's a, you know, I, I, I try and live, out, live that out because if people see a confidence um, and, and, a, and, a, and a positive focus, then um, hopefully that rubs off mm -hmm. and they, they realise it is possible. You know, it's very similar to the uh, there's a campaign I'm just trying to think to the it's get it gets better campaign you know um we when you start to see uh you know the community embracing that and showing that you know we're not always going to be facing the same issues that we are it does get better yeah and you know your your challenge and your invitations to find is to become authentic, to find your authentic self, and to um, and just to be aware that you know you can make a difference in the world, mm -hmm. uh, that you you're able to make a difference in the lives of the people you meet, mm -hmm. um, to be open to what um, you know um, other things can be happening in your world. Mm -hmm. uh, that's become a guiding. That's become a guiding thing um, for me. Um, it's very much the um, 
what drives like, the work I still continue to do with QCF. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I I don't know if you're aware, there is another group um, called Out Christian, which is very much following on from the um, GCN um, heritage. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of them? I am. Is it the Trey Pearson group? or Trey? Yes. Trey, the Trey um, Weaver. Weaver, yeah. Now, I, I love those guys. I know them all well. They've already told me, you, you know, you've got to make a priority to be here next year. And I thought, mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah, nice, nice, but priorities have to line up. Um, I One of the challenges, I mean, I know that you came in very early into uh, leadership at QCF in the interim process. Um, there were a lot of folk, and I don't need to tell you this, you'll know this, who really struggled with the way in which um, GCN had morphed into a different form of organisation. Um, I also was well aware that there was there, there were dynamics that were going on mm -hmm. that required that change to happen. Um, I know Justin well enough to know that you know there were there were some there were some cricks in the armour, um, and I you know. It, it, and I could I could see that. And for me, the bottom line wasn't about allegiance to GCN. The bottom line was about being there for people at their time of need and helping them through that. Um, and when you look at QCF now, our members don't give a toss about what happened in 2018. Mm -hmm. That you know, they're not interested in that. They are looking for a community. They're looking for people who will support them. Unfortunately, a lot of the GCN folk polarised it and made it a political event. And um, for me, I, I, I won't go there. Um, that's another thing I think about a bit of my personality is that if I do have to draw a line in the sand, I can be quite absolute mm. and say, no, this is, not, this is not a healthy space. This is not a good thing to do. Mm. I hear you. I acknowledge you. Um, I'll give you space to, to take whatever view you like. I lost friends because of it. And my, my view was, well, so be it. You know, go and have a nice life. For sure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I still, but the interesting thing is that, that my friends who are still involved in like the out Christian and out at sea, and, uh, or they still have this absolute love and respect. Um, and and I and I treat them as the same space as I would anyone who I meet through QCF. Um, we're a different organisation, for sure. Um, one of the things about Fort Lauderdale, I was coming. One of the questions in my mind when I went to that conference was, "Have I have I run my have I run my uh, my time? Mm. You know, I've done. I've been doing this for twelve years." Is it now time to basically say, um, you know, the journey is over? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a totally different organisation that GCN used to be. Um, it looks different, um, and yeah, and I came, I, I went there really. Want that was, a, I guess, was the big question that was on my mind, and I was wanting to discern in my own, you know, just clarity, just what my future was. You know, I came away from that. I would put Fort Lauderdale as probably the second most influential conference mm. of the DCN QCFs that I went to. 
Some were highly influential. Uh, they've all had their moments. But I came away with the sense of absolutely, um, you know, there's still work to be done, and I'm privileged to be involved. But I, 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 am, un I am unashamedly evangelical when I'm talking with, with, the, with um, my gay friends. Cool. That's awesome. Because, you know, the God who I know, the Jesus who I love, is the, is, you know, offers the same abundant life. Uh, and, you know, we can, we can sometimes just get so lost in, in feeling that we're not welcome, that the door's been shut. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that to me is, is something that it, it underpins everything I do. And uh, if, it, if, it, if I didn't allow that to happen, I think that would be, uh, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. It's a beautiful story. I wrote down some things, but I really do... I think I was, I wrote in my notes, the secret sauce here to resilience, but you yeah. have some beautiful things like family acceptance, self-determination, mm -hmm. your faith, surrounding yourself with healthy um, community. And then I added too, as I was listening to you, but authenticity and boundaries. And those mm -hmm. seem like they've been really, really powerful. I think your story of resilience is. Well, thank you. Yeah. Around. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me now, my main challenge too is really bringing about change within the Salvation Army as opposed to uh, um, last year. Um, well, perhaps I'll just give you a little bit of background. We still have, we still have some real difficulties um, in terms of the church um, becoming fully inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, they're in a bit of a strange situation, really. Um, they're not in a negative, non but they're not affirming. Uh, they're still holding to uh, the, what they would, I'd say is the imperatives of Scripture. Mm. They still want to hold to, um, you know, that marriage is between a man and a woman. Sure. Um, but we accept that people are, are, are born gay and they're not. So you've got this sort of difficult dissonance that actually sits with it. Uh, now, I'm fortunate and I'm very good friends with um, uh, the person who is the number two for the Salvation Army in the world. Wow. Um, I know him very well. He's actually a New Zealander. Um, and I saw him just before Christmas. And we, one of the conversations they say to us is that you need to understand that for the Salvation Army to become fully inclusive and say that we embrace... Because we are an international organization, we're an international church. We're more than, you know, we actually are an evangelical church as well. And we operate in, I think it's about 137 countries around the world. And the biggest growth that is happening, of course, is in Africa and Asia. Now, we do also understand that in some of those countries, and I can think of places like Indonesia, uh, Nigeria, where there is an absolute, it's not safe mm. um, to, be, to, be, um, to be gay. I have friends who would actually say, well, the reason for part of that is, of course, is colonialisation. You know, you, um, British Victorian um, running of governments and coming in and taking over has a lot to answer for. Um, 
given that if the Salvation Army comes out and changes their view, what that does is there are countries where it would not be safe for the Salvation Army to operate. Uh, and they would, you know, they would have churches burnt down. You would have work, workers who would be um, possibly massacred. So there's the absolute fear that we need to protect our people. We need to protect our people right around the church. And the trade-off is how do we protect them without compromising this, you know, without compromising their safety? And as I said, there are governments who are just looking for an opportunity to uh, um, undermine, you know. So my response to that, of course, and I do have a response, and I've said to the, you know, Salvation Army elites in your leadership. You know, your concern is that people will um, be attacked and will die because of us becoming inclusive. I need to tell you, and I speak on behalf of the thousands or the hundreds of thousands of gay people who are no longer here to tell their story Mm -hmm. because the way in which we treat them in the church has been so harmful. So I hear you, but you need to weigh that up. And when you're worried about protecting your resources and your people, where are you going to protect our youth um, who are gay? Mm-hmm. Where, who, where are you going to protect those who don't identify as cisgender? Yeah, um, and they look at you and, 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 and you know you've asked the hard question. Mm-hmm. And you see it in their eyes as they're trying to process it. Um, and I guess it's just, we just walk that journey with them. Um, you're not going to achieve anything by going and fighting. A couple of years ago, we um, no, last year we had a very unfortunate incident where um, our general wrote a letter um, and he said some um basically to the All Salvation Army and saying that they had no desire to move away from the current articulated theological view. And the fallout from that was immense. Um, as part of the role I did, I, I, I certainly wrote to the general. In fact, I'll copy you into that so that you might find that as a useful thing. Um, I also did write submissions on conversion therapy the other thing, though, which um, uh, I did, and because I could see it was going to be such a challenging time, we have a lot of people in the Salvation Army, including our officers, who are not out. Mm-hmm. And they're still, you know. And so for them, it wasn't safe to you know, write, say, to the general. And, and so what I did, I offered to um, collate stories of, uh, on a very, um, you know, I would be totally confidential about this, but if you want to send me your story or your letter, um, which you want to go to the general, I will collate them and I will send them on anonymously under, um, I think I ended up with nearly 40, 40 letters, 40 people. And when you read some of the stories, your heart just breaks. Hmm. Um now, I, I was privileged to know the names of quite a number of those people, but it just, as I said, it just broke your heart. Uh, um, the woman who 
um, was in a mixed orientation marriage um, and didn't couldn't leave her, didn't want the, that to fall over because it was her security. Um, and uh, and I'm sort of thinking, you know, that how how can you bring life to people when, you know, you're so I don't want not the word insecure, but when you're feeling so scarred, mm-hmm. um, and that's not that's not what the gospel's about. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. Look, I'll I'll see if I can find some other bits and pieces. Okay, um, that would be great. Which I'll flip through to you, um, and uh, you know I'll. I'll, I'll give you a copy of the of the um, document that I wrote, which summarises a lot of what I've talked about. Okay. Um, plus also the um, the submissions and the letters to the general. Um, mm-hmm. I won't give you the copy of all the people because that that's just too harrowing. But uh, probably, but it'll be a bit of information overload. But you might find it just useful. I would love um, that. Yeah. Just being able to go through and and it may give some, yeah. Um, you know some other some other ways to go. Mm-hmm. That would be great. And if you if you want to use this, that's fine. I'm you know I'm more than happy. Okay, great, yeah. awesome. Hey, bless you. Lovely to chat. Um, Same with you. Keep me in the loop. I will. I will absolutely. Yeah, and hopefully we'll talk again. That sounds great. I, yeah. I would love that. It's good to see you. Bless you. Bless you and um, take care. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, too. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) The theme for our Pride series is I Am Resilient because I wanted to remind all of you that trauma can be strong and effective, but so can we. During this Pride season, I hope, sincerely hope, that you take time to recognize your power, your natural talents, your genuine nature, your ability to create the safety you need. I hope you take care of yourself from the inside out as you celebrate who you are. Happy Pride. Now let's get back to the show. I am very much aware of my role in the lineage of the queer family. The fact that I am clinic is in existence. I am planning to legally marry my male partner and that this podcast even exists was made possible by all the queer people who have gone before me. From the Marsha P. Johnsons and the Harvey Milks to the brave children who came out in rural areas even before I was born, I sit more comfortably than I will even know because of their toil and their resilience. Today's guest is assuredly part of the lineage that has afforded me so much comfortability. Of course, there is a lot of political bigotry through which we must wade, and anti-queer laws that try to diminish our voice and our dignity. But stories like that of today's guests reinvigorate me to take a stand, to draw another line in the sand where one is necessary. I can't imagine what it must have been like to come out in a political environment that was willing to put people in jail for seven years but to find the courage to make the stand for representation, for self-respect, and for moral justice takes one resilient force, and sometimes it takes tragedy to find that courage. Personally, I find a lot of excited motivation when I hear his story. I want to build, I want to fight, and I want to defend, and I want to educate. Seeing what today's guest has done within the Salvation Army and what that has meant for my life thousands of miles away 
leaves me wanting to leave a similar tidal wave of change for all of the queer and trans folks who come after me. And of course, to do that, we must dedicate ourselves to the cause. Knowing that today's guest learned Greek, for crying out loud, to make a difference highlights his diligence and his internal conviction. As I observed his moral character throughout his story, I observed a mature man. In my notes, I wrote, Resilience is not only about shouting and being a petulant voice. It can also be about grace and the measured wisdom in a respectable manner. To think of all that it might take to reach true equality can be overwhelming. But to think of getting there with dignity, wisdom, and a measured plan seems rather doable. And to me, it feels like less than work and more like loving those around me. I am resilient, as our theme for this year is not necessarily to pump you up with passion to fight back, although that might happen, but it was created to help you understand that living in the hurt position doesn't have to be the default and it certainly doesn't have to be your norm. You may need to sit back and rest, recuperate, or find your approach. You may need support in accessing your resilience or an example to know how to activate for your betterment. Whether you take time to find what's right for you or you are ready to fight right now, our hope at I Am Clinic is that you know you have the ability to heal. To today's guest, you have been a light to my path. I am thankful for your example of standing up, drawing lines, and defending those who couldn't defend themselves. Your example gives us much to learn from and a lot to draw upon. Your kindness, enthusiasm, and wisdom will not be forgotten by me and I am sure many others. A big, big hug to you, my dear friend. To all my queer and trans siblings, please know that you are strong and let that be your mantra this Pride season. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic.